Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. All right, well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Acts chapter 4. And um, over the years as I've preached, I've given lots of examples of harassment and persecution of believers throughout history and in other parts of the world today. Um, and uh, when I first was doing that, uh, I guess, let me see, I've been in the ministry over 30 years now, hard to believe, but over 30 years now. When I first was doing that, there wasn't as much to talk about here in America related to persecution and harassment. Uh, there is a persecution spectrum all the way from being mocked for your faith, uh, uh, people kidding with you. I used to do that toward others when I was a non-believer. Uh, there's that. There is um, maybe some, some recourse at, at a, your job where they promote somebody that's not going to be sharing the faith with others instead of you. Uh, all the way to people that get uh, physically beaten up for the gospel historically. Uh, Paul had that happen many times. And of course, all those that get have been killed for the faith in the pages of the books, uh, book of Acts and in, uh, later on in church history. And our founders, uh, you know, um, gave us such great religious liberty here in America that for a long time we were immune, you know, from a lot of that happening here. There was a general respect where, you know, people could believe different things without harassment. Uh, you know, there's just nothing like it in the Muslim world, you know, uh, where you can't honestly take on the legacy of Muhammad and who he was and things like that. But harassment's becoming more commonplace in the public square in America, and I think we're going to be hearing more about overt acts of persecution uh, in our land. Our founders did include many devout Christians and people in general that accepted those rights that came from uh, our Creator. They were unalienable, and so talking about and exercising faith in public was expected and even appreciated. You know, that's the kind of country uh, we had created here. But all that has changed. You know, first, it was interpreting the First Amendment with the non-constitutional phrase, separation of church and state. Um, that has been taken to mean that all faith expression should be eliminated from public places such as schools. And uh, I think Southside got along with it, got away with it a little bit longer, but you know, my growing up in DC and then Charlotte and uh, exposure to things even up in the valley here in the same state, Virginia, uh, you know, they really didn't want a whole bunch of praying at ball games or was, you know, uh, before class or anything like that. Uh, and I think, again, you know, uh, I, I remember how impressed I was going over to Kentucky Elementary School and Bobby Shields, in essence, was leading the school like he was a pastor. But even in my talks with him, I was aware that, you know, um, uh, people were looking to see and uh, were expecting it to be more, quote unquote, secular as it went along. Um, now, what happens is when you say the faith cannot be expressed in schools, something fills that void. If you say we're not going to talk about faith here in the office, something's going to fill that void. And what has filled that void is a very religion-like thing, a s secular humanism philosophy 
uh, that uh, has been given the home court advantage in our schools by the courts and things like that. Its proponents have become the high priests of enforcing no public references to religion, especially Jesus. And they go after everything. And usually it's not as, uh, it's even a small number sometimes that get uh, prayers at ball games stopped because they don't like the sight of that happening after a game. Uh, or I remember one of the greatest ministries we had at Bryan College when I was a student there, and I was over the student ministry organization. We were sending 100 students into the public schools to teach Bible classes once a week, and it wasn't even signed release, you know, that just the whole class would do it. And um, sometime in the last, about 10, 15 years ago, that was no longer allowed because of the inevitable complaints that came. Um, 50 years ago, there was a tolerance for Christians as long as they huddled inside their churches and didn't attempt to bring their faith to work, school, or society. And of course, that's been uh, changing. Um, in the meantime, almost all public discussion of law has featured people of faith having to participate with one arm tied around their back. So, yeah, we can talk about the abortion, quote-unquote, issue, but you Christians, you can't bring your Bible into it because other people don't believe the Bible and stuff. And it's like, well, uh, we should bring everything into it. You bring your ideas, I'm going to bring mine, and my things informed from the Scripture uh, are going to be in there too. But for many years now, secular humanists have been using issues like abortion, cohabitation, now gay marriage, LGBT things, to make the Church of Jesus Christ seem at first old-fashioned, then foolish in light of modernity and now dangerous to society. And it almost gives you chills when you think about, you just look over uh, further uh, east, over the Atlantic Ocean to England, and then even further over to Europe, and see how secular and how godless those places have become, and how uh, in many of those places, less than two or three percent of the people are evangelical Christians, uh, Bible-believing Christians. Um, that number in America sometimes gets as high as 20 or 30 percent, but in reality, those who have a biblical worldview is down to somewhere between 6 and 9 percent, those that will give biblical answers to questions posed by, uh, you know, so beyond that you're born again, uh, they'll also say, express confidence in the scriptures, the belief that Satan is real, that so is hell, you know, that Jesus is the only way of salvation, just basic biblical affirmations. So the trend is clear. Secular humanists are not just pushing for believers to get back in their churches and be quiet. They want believers to not act on what the Bible says at all or face civil punishment. Civil punishment. And, you know, again, uh, we mentioned Sunday when, as we prayed for Les Adams and the General Assembly that's to convene. Uh, and oh, by the way, as part of that, uh, Jason Mayeris is the new um, uh, Attorney General for Virginia. And he's a member of a church that has the same affiliation we do, SBCV, First Baptist Norfolk, is where he was uh, uh, cut his teeth and things like that, which is really cool. Uh, that's the church that uh, Steve Harper uh, is um, on staff at, um, at as uh, doing their media and things like that. But he uh, was just interviewed by Brandon Pickett for the SBCV's Not Alone podcast. And it was really, really good, you know, just him talking about how he came to faith and uh, how he hopes to um, uh, defend religious liberty and other things, you know, that uh, certainly wasn't the way it was the last few years. But in the last two years, um, there was a godless agenda in the state House of Delegates, the state Senate, and, and the governor too. 
And some of our, um, those laws that were passed and signed are absolutely frightening. Um, in abortion, we became as liberal as New York and Oregon and places like North Korea and China that allow abortion all the way up, you know. Uh, and um, in, uh, they did work on and passed a significant number of things even encroaching on the freedom of religion that churches have. So if somebody came in and wanted to use the opposite bathroom of their gender, you know, uh, they, they could do it, you know. And so all of us were scratching our head and saying, okay, we're still going to do what the Bible says to do, but now they're putting in apparatuses to bring either, uh, uh, you know, appearing before a criminal court or a civil court, and people could sue us in those different things. That's already been happening to bakers and to... Um, you know, florists and things like that across the country, and uh, those things are put in place now to have the same thing happen. Only a certain amount of that could be rolled back the next two years, but pray as much as it can be, will be, you know, but sometimes those uh, are harder to get rolled back. So how do we respond to the very uh, growing amount of harassment and even possible persecution? Fortunately, we have guidance from the very first act of harassment and persecution the early church faced and how they responded. So that's my long intro there for Acts 4, and we'll read down through verse 22. Now as they spoke to the people, that's Peter and John, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So 3,000 men were saved in Acts 2. Another 2,000 here, we're up to 5,000. That's just the men. There's also believing women. There's also uh, their teenagers and children that were believing. So maybe the church had as many as 20,000 now, which is pretty cool. Uh, there in uh, Jerusalem. It became a very big mega church kind of thing. Verse 5, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This Jesus is the stone which was rejected by your builders, by you builders, but it's become the chief cornerstone. Nor, verse 12, one of the great verses here in the Bible in the book of Acts. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. So remember in that earlier message he said, Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in the Old Testament it was whosoever calls on the name of Yahweh. And Peter said, Jesus is the name of the Lord. Jesus is that. Here's just another thing to go along with that. Verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Another great statement from the book of Acts, isn't it? That, uh, I mean, knowing the Lord and having faith in Him and following His words, it's its own education. The Proverbs promise that the Word of God will make the simple person wise. 
uh, and uh, teach you things that uh, not only how to be saved, but also how to live and order your life around truth. So they realized they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. <laughs> That's great, right? So Peter uh, was smart. In addition to being a good preacher, he was smart. Everybody's seen that man begging in a cripple and had him right there with him, right? So you just stand here. You're a, you're a, you're a testimony just by standing rather than just, you know, being on your mat begging. But when they had commanded them to go outside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. So I just want to talk to you uh, about the words unable to stop and from this great phrase that Peter gives within there, uh, we cannot but speak. We are unable to stop. So in verses 1 through 7, the apostles are arrested for preaching Jesus. In verse 1, we see the authorities actually interrupted Peter while he was preaching, yet many more believed. It's great. People got saved despite not having the formal invitation there because they were interrupted. And the Roman authorities had delegated temple policing to the Jewish uh, leaders. So um, even though Rome was, was the uh, governing power for the whole community, when it came to that temple area and the things that happened around it, they let the Jews govern themselves in that uh, but certainly the Roman leaders would uh, intervene if they needed to. What was the name of the uh, ruling council of the Jews? The Sanhedrin, right, the Sanhedrin. And it had uh, over 70 members uh, with the high priest presiding. It had more Sadducees on it than Pharisees. Um, do you remember the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? Um, yeah, yeah, so the Pharisees, they pretty much believed in everything that the Old Testament taught. Uh, their problem wasn't that they didn't believe what was written. Their problem was that they added so much to make sure they obeyed what was written that they put more stock in their traditions than the words of the Old Testament. But because they did, they believed there'd be a resurrection. I mean, that hope is expressed confidently by people like Job. I know my Redeemer lives and I'm going to see him. Sadducees are more close to what we call our modern-day liberals they uh, only accepted the parts of Scripture they wanted to from the Old Testament, but they denied other parts of it. And many of them were from the aristocracy and very much aligned with the Roman occupiers. So Pharisees and Sadducees genuinely didn't like each other, but they did serve together on this uh, Sanhedrin. Um, but the Sanhedrins generally were people that had greater wealth, um, and they were people that uh, were, uh, had made backroom deals with the... Um, uh, Roman authorities to keep their power and their position. And um, many of the priests were more lined up with the Sadducees than they were with the Pharisees. And that itself has some connections with the Maccabean revolt that sometimes we talk about, you know, that you hear about happening. Uh, the Hanukkah is based on the Maccabean revolt being able to recapture some territory from 
uh, occupiers in their day, a few hundred years before Christ. But the commander of the temple guard was second in authority only to the high priest. So he is a very important figure. And this large gathering drew their attention, and they did not like what they heard Peter and John preaching. So the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, and they put them in custody. The Sanhedrin had the official function of teaching and interpreting the scriptures, as well as approving speakers. And so here were two Galilean Jews speaking to the crowds without their permission, and they didn't like it. Verse 2, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so, of course, Sadducees, as we've said, did not accept the entire Old Testament as Scripture. They didn't believe in a future resurrection of the body. That's why they were sad, you see, as you've heard before. Um, for them, the Messiah was not a real person they were looking for. It was kind of an ideal uh, they certainly didn't want their Roman rulers hearing talk of a legitimate Messiah king that was coming to deliver Israel. And then there's the other problem. The Sanhedrin had just two months earlier condemned Jesus as a blasphemer and seen him crucified by their Roman pals. And when his body was missing, they had circulated the rumor that the body had been stolen. But now here are two Galileans saying that Jesus the blasphemer is alive. Uh, so they arrested them until they could try them the next day. And so, when you think about church history, Peter and John became the first disciples arrested for speaking publicly about Jesus. They would by no means be the last. Uh, I regularly pray for persecuted peoples, either using the Open Doors app uh, or the uh, Voice of the Martyrs app, and uh, regularly hear of situations just like this happening around the world in our day. Um, look at verse 5. And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. So even though Annas had been deposed by the Romans in AD 15, he still was the people's high priest and very influential. And so uh, we saw this in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus appeared before Annas and Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the official one. His, uh, he's Annas' son-in-law. And it's funny, all these relatives being mentioned. Now, here's what's interesting to us. It's that Peter and John were standing trial in the same place their beloved Jesus had just two months earlier. So it really gives you goosebumps as this un, uh, develops because Peter's going to get a chance to uh, speak and defend the faith in an area where he had just two months earlier vehemently denied that he knew Jesus. And sometimes, every once in a while, the Lord gives you a chance to be in a place where you had messed up bad and get a chance to uh, speak for the Lord this time. And that's happened a time or two with me with old high school friends and uh, soccer things and stuff like that. Uh, I've told some of you my story of messing up gloriously in soccer, you know, playing for the devil rather than the Lord, and getting opportunities to, on that same field, you know, do things that uh, helped others see Jesus, which is pretty cool. Peter's going to get a chance like that. Um, in verse 7, they say, by what power and what name have you done this? And, of course, in their eyes, they were the authority. You can't speak there without us saying it's okay to speak there. Who gave you the authority to do that? You know, just like they'd question Jesus. By what authority do you do this? By what authority do you overturn the money changers' tables? And, of course, the authority comes from heaven. 
And it, not only did Jesus have it, he left us with that power. And his Great Commission, what did he say? All power, all authority, the same word, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So you go therefore and make disciples. And when you first hear that, you go, do what? Wait, what? <laughs> You've got the authority, so we go make disciples? What are you saying to us there, Lord? And what he's saying to the, is that he has, since he rose from the dead, he has the power, he has the authoritative keys to unlock heaven and hell for people. And it comes through the preaching of the message, the gospel about Jesus Christ. He was returning to heaven. And what he's done is delegated to us that authority. It's kind of like when you go away on a trip and you delegate power of attorney to somebody else to represent your interests while you're gone. And I had to do that with my grandmom. My dad had the power of attorney for my grandmom. She was in a nursing home. He went on a cruise, and it was a six-week cruise. During that time, grandma got sick and grandma was going to die. But before dad left, he had the foresight to delegate the power of attorney to the child. He has four. There's four of us to the child that lives closest. I was an hour and a half away. And so I had the power of attorney. And dad, uh, it, it was a real mess just getting him back, uh, you know, from stopping and flying and all the different things. So she died during that time. And I'm the one that had to make the decision to call in hospice. I consulted with my siblings and things. But dad had delegated me the authority to represent uh, the family interest. And Jesus did that with his body, the church, right? So. What happens in Matthew 28, that's the authority for them standing and preaching, even though it was against the Sanhedrin's ideas there. Um, so who did they think they were to act without earthly authority? Well, they were children of the living God, and Jesus had given them authority. So the apostles defend the message Jesus saves in verses 8 through 14. Verse 8 tells us that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see these terms about being filled with the Spirit and the Spirit coming upon and a little bit of speaking in tongues and other things. And when you're reading a narrative document like Acts, you're seeing, you, you get some statements that, uh, you know, you just look at and say, wow, that's awesome. We need to believe to be saved. We need to repent. Uh, there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. But in some cases, as we read Acts, we're seeing what happened and we go to the apostles' letters to fill in the blank about what we're to believe and to do, the authoritative teaching, right? And so in this case, we read that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're reminded that the letters do tell us that when you believe in Jesus, you're baptized by the Spirit and included in the universal church family. I mean, not just, uh, you, you know, when you get, get baptized physically, it's part of joining a local church. But the church that is in heaven and on earth, all those blood-washed, born-again saints, you know, that's a, they call it, don't confuse the word universal church with universalism. Uh, that's what I want to make sure you don't catch right now, you know, is. But if you're born again and truly been saved, not everybody that's in a church has done that, but you're part of the worldwide and global and international and heavenly church of Christ. And so everybody that that's true of has been baptized by the Spirit. That only happens once at the moment of salvation. The filling of the Spirit happens as we're flushed to sin and filled with God's presence through prayer. Verse 13 speaks of Peter speaking with boldness. And again, this is the point we see. This was the place of his greatest mess up, and now he's boldly speaking for the Lord. So here's your next fill in the blank. Remember that just two months earlier, Peter had denied Christ to a servant girl while standing in the courtyard outside the Sanhedrin while Jesus was being tried. 
Now he gets a chance to testify in the place of his greatest failure. And uh, that's so exciting to see that uh, he got this opportunity. And uh, you and I may very well get those same opportunities. There's past family times where we failed and didn't share, and now there's a chance to share. There's past high school reunions where we didn't, now we get a chance to. Uh, there's past times that uh, somebody that came in and saw us at our workplace or something, you know, they were fishing around and giving us every opportunity to share a little word for the Lord, and we didn't. The time coming up, you may have that boldness and get to do it. So he gets another chance to preach. This time, it's not before an interested crowd, but a hostile one. Later, Peter's going to uh, write, you know, he says, be ready, be ready in season and out of season, right, to share the reason for the hope that's within you. And uh, so he goes from, uh, you know, this is the hostile Sanhedrin here. Um, others out in the crowd were more receptive because they'd seen the healing. They don't care about the healing. They want to know why he's threatening them. So, and that's what the Holy Spirit will do. He'll shine if we are prayed up. He'll fill us with boldness. He'll allow us to speak. And so turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Because Jesus had actually told them times like this are going to come. And if they love the Lord and they're prayed up, been reading their Bibles then the time will come where they might get put on the spot and the Holy Spirit will just allow them to remember things they didn't know and share the word there. So Matthew 10, 16 through 20, Jesus said, Behold, I send you out of sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now don't ever let a preacher or Sunday school teacher say, use those verses and then say, that's why I didn't do any preparing for today. Because <laughs> the specific context is sometimes you're just going to be minding your business, going about your way, and all of a sudden somebody's going to put you on the spot for Jesus. And, uh, you know, in that moment, you probably can't have prepared enough for the, you know, sense of, uh, you know, what the Lord will do is give you in that moment the ability to um, respond in a way that would honor Him. Back in Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 10 are just one sentence in the Greek, and his subject is the power of the name of Jesus. Look again at verse 10. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. That word whole there is actually the same word sozo that saved comes from or healed comes from. And so the word for healed at the end of verse 10 comes from sozo, same word used in verse 12 for saved. So Peter's saying the Jesus you killed is alive and saved this man here and will be the only way for you or anybody else to be saved as well. And that's where he comes to that great statement in verse 12, no other name under heaven given to people by which you must be saved. People won't be saved in the name of Sigmund Freud uh, and any attempts they have to justify their own behavior, right? People won't be saved in the name of Moses or Muhammad by keeping any checklist of rules. People won't be saved in the name of Buddha or Krishna by learning how to meditate with an empty head. Only by repenting of your sins, placing your faith and trust in Christ can you be saved. Well, verse 11 calls Jesus the cornerstone. 
That would have been familiar language to them because in the ancient world, the cornerstone held the whole building together. Now they're more or less ceremonial things, you know, uh, but uh, back then you had to get the cornerstone right to have the building right. So the Jewish leaders, they were the builders of the nation, but they were not building on the only lasting foundation. And of course, that's Jesus, the Messiah. And that's where we want to listen and build our nation on the Lord Jesus and his teachings. Uh, We want to build our marriages and our families on those things as well. They labor in vain who uh, build without Jesus. And that had to be particularly perplexing to the Sanhedrin. I mean, they just like, these guys talk funny. They talk that old Galilean accent uh, stuff, and they're just, you know, dumb as bricks and fishermen and these kind of this and that. And I can't believe this wisdom we hear from them. And, um, but I love it because um, the apostles weren't afraid anymore. Uh, they were the ones afraid. How, how are we seeing this from these guys that, that don't, you know, this just doesn't make sense. They don't have degrees like we do and this like we do and that like we do. And I remember uh, R.J. Barber uh, said to me several times before he died, he said, man, I really wish I had gotten more learning like you and had some of those degrees. And I said, man, I wish I was anointed preaching like you do and stuff like that. Um, and uh, to each his own, you know. Uh, but they thought they were done with their Jesus problem, but he's back. And he's back in the form of this church of godly men and women and uh, those fishermen that were now fishers of men. Well, verses 15 to 18, the apostles are told it's illegal to publicly mention Jesus. So they can't explain the transformation of these guys from cowardly behavior to courageous boldness. Uh, they can't deny the miracle that's been performed by the power of Jesus. And what they should have done is go ahead and repent and say, hey, Jesus is true, we should follow him. But instead, they go into damage control, uh, like a lot of people that uh, a lot of uh, religion without Jesus does. They asked, what shall we do to these men? But what should they have asked? Sirs, what must we do to be saved, right? Just like in Acts 2 and the great Acts 16 when the jailer does that. Uh, But pride and their fear of losing control leads them to harder hearts. And that is so sad. Let's read verses 17 and 18 again. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, they reasoned among themselves, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. So they threatened them and told them not to talk about Jesus any longer. Um, And you know, uh, unfortunately, many times that works on us today. I might fire you if you don't stop talking about Jesus. Okay, I'll stop talking about Jesus. Uh, you might get suspended if you, uh, you know, keep having that prayer meeting before or after school. Uh, well, I don't want to get suspended, you know, and, uh, and all these different things. Um, uh, so here we see the first Christians dealt with the same things, you know, and uh, uh, it's easy for me to say as a preacher, You know, I can say it from a pulpit or in a classroom and those type things, but I'm well aware that as members go out into their workplace or, you know, uh, and I'm not talking about being dumb. I'm just, you know, Jesus said be innocent as uh, doves and shrewd as serpents, you know, uh, not dumb as ox. (laughs) And so there is appropriate ways to do things, but, you know, if they tell you you're going to lose your job if you ever talk about Jesus again 
or we're going to suspend you if you bring your Bible to school or whatever. Well, those are things that um, both with the authority of the Lord, but also as citizens of America, we can push back on. One of the best ways I ever saw this done was by a member that was a regional manager of a, a Starbucks is, uh, that I, who was a member of mine back up in uh, Waynesboro. And um, so he would go and visit stores, and he had a great countenance. He had joy and he had peace. And he would sometimes, a store manager that he was dealing with or one of the employees there would say, hey, what makes you different? You know, there's just something about you. And he said, you really want to know? And they said, well, yeah, that's why I asked you. Do you care enough that during your break that's coming up in 20 minutes, we can talk about it then, you know? And I uh, said, so, yeah, I guess so, you know. And during that 15-minute break, he'd share, okay, we're off company time now. Uh, you know, we want to be good workers because there is the opposite extreme where some uh, well-meaning but misguided Christians, all they do is talk about the Lord and don't do a good job at work and stuff like that. So you have to be appropriate in things. And my wife's one of the very best at this. Elizabeth has been great over the years at talking to her co-workers at appropriate moments about the Lord. And I got to baptize some of them in the past and stuff. And uh, Reedsville's a little bit further than the same city we live in and stuff, but hopefully we'll get to do some of that here too. But um, this, uh, this guy would have great gospel conversations during those breaks because that's the way he did it. So th there is something about being appropriate. But how did the first Christians react when they were told such nonsense? Do not preach about this name or else. And that's what we see in verses 19 through 22. The apostles were unable to stop talking about Jesus. I love verses 19 and 20. Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. <laughs> you guys that are claiming to represent God but are judging us. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And that's just worth a little smiley face next to it in verse 20 there. We are unable to stop talking about Jesus. Peter and John were not going to disobey the orders of Acts 1-8 where Jesus has said, When you receive power, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And now they were getting to do it. Uh, it included the temple. It included the workplaces. It included the public sphere. Um, so when they tell you you can't, say, Jesus told me I can. And I am unable to stop talking about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, so the fill in the blank is Jesus there. Jesus told me I can. And uh, he is the greatest authority, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We've come to some days of great testing in the American church. And many are shrinking back from speaking about the seriousness of sin, the good news of salvation in Christ alone. I can't tell you the number of times I run into a ministry, uh, a pastor, and uh, I ask them to describe their ministry. And I can't tell you the number of times they say something along the lines of, we're just have, trying to have a real positive ministry. You know, uh, like, you know, like Joel Osteen, you know, or something like that. Tell people that God's for them and give them the scriptures and the positive things that can happen in their lives when they, uh, you know, turn to the scriptures and those things. Um, a lot of preachers want to have positive ministries instead of preaching the whole counsel of God. They won't talk about the bad news of sin. And if you don't talk about the bad news of sin, people really have no context to understand the good news of salvation. You know, Billy Graham said it well in the past. He said, the problem in America is not getting people saved. It's getting them lost. <laughs> it's getting them to recognize their need as sinners before a holy God who can't tolerate sin. It's to get them to stop assuming that they're so wonderful and lovely in themselves with their great self-esteem that, uh, you know, uh, that they get to judge God and His Word and that God would be honored to have them as part of His uh, family and saved and things like that, you know. Um, 
And so, uh, you know, it, it, uh, it, uh, it is true to this day, you know, that the first thing a person has to do is reckon with the fact that they have the need because they're lost before holy God. They'd rather do what they want to do than what God's Word says. And um, I love how Pilgrim's Progress reinforces that as it goes along also. So when you finally get the bad news that you're a sinner, you understand the good news that what you couldn't do for yourself, Jesus has done for you by dying for your sins on the cross. In the days ahead, you're going to have to look people you know square in the eyes and say, I love you enough to tell you that you need to repent. Uh, you know, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death, Proverbs 14, 12 says. And whether it's the um, rejection of biblical teaching on sexuality, people are still going to sow the wind, they're going to reap the whirlwind. Uh, so in that matter, God created sex for a male and a female in the context of a marriage commitment. And when that happens, it's for bonding and procreation and all other expressions of it are sin, they're also self-defeating. There'll be consequences too, not doing it God's way. And, uh, you know, and the same thing is true with trying to find uh, ways of salvation apart from Christ. There's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. All other paths uh, do lead to hell. So not only can God not bless what you're doing if you reject God's word, he has to judge it. Uh, but Jesus will save if we repent and turn to Him. Now, here's where uh, I uh, want to make this statement, and you've got it in your notes there, and I want to explain it after I give it. The glory of God is the overarching theme of the Bible, not salvation. Some people think the Bible's overarching theme is salvation, and the Bible has lots to say about salvation, but the overarching theme of the Bible is the glory of God. God is glorified through the salvation of repentant sinners, but he's also glorified through the judgment of unrepentant sinners. He will receive the glory to his name, either in salvation or judgment. And so as we read through the Bible, um, God is glorified in creation and the providential care of all things. He is glorified in his raising up of Israel and what he did in the past and what he intends to do in the future in the life of Israel. Uh, he was glorified in... Uh, putting them in the promised land and protecting them in the promised land. He's glorified by judging the enemies of Israel that are really defiant and enemies against God. He is glorified in the tremendous incarnation of His Son on earth. Uh, Jesus said at the end of that time on earth, He said, Father, I'm looking forward to going back to the glory I shared with you from the foundation of the world. He's glorified in the glorious gospel that gets to the ends of the earth. He's glorified when um, the church, each and every church, is a kingdom outpost representing spiritually what God wants for earth in the days before that physical kingdom comes later on. And because he has the, He's the Creator and He's done all the work of redemption, He is glorified when sinners turn to Him. But make no mistake about it, when sinners refuse to turn to Him, He'll also be glorified in the judgment, the right judgment, of those who won't repent and defy Him, and He'll be glorified when He reigns with man on earth, on the new earth forever. And so that's what a few weeks ago, and I know uh, one uh, of our members wanted a little bit more explanation of it, I included in my notes on a Sunday morning John Piper's great quote that says, missions is not the main purpose of the church, worship is. 
Missions exist because worship does not. So because God's our creator, he deserves to be glorified by each and every one of us. Each of us has a glory deficit between us and God, right? The glory that we should be bringing him by the nature of his creation of us and the glory we actually bring him. There's a glory deficit there. That's why Romans 3.23 says, all of sin and come short of the glory of God, right? And so Jesus died to save us and restore relationship with God and then our heart's desire is to bring him glory in everything we do. Um, and so what does it mean to glorify the Lord? Well, it's part and parcel of worshiping him, right? And so what God expects and even has the right to demand of every person who's ever lived on earth is to worship him. But around the world, there are peoples that haven't even had access to the gospel yet. They're not worshiping him. They're living in ignorance. They're living in idolatry. And something stirs in their hearts and minds because they can look around at creation and say, there must be a creator out there. And what would glorify God is for them to pursue and say, I'm not going to worship idols when it's evident that everything was created. I'm going to pursue that. And I love a book I have called Eternity in Their Hearts that shows people, groups around the world, that started by saying, God must be creator, there must be a creator God. And as they pursued more knowledge of that, came across missionaries, or Bible translators, or Christians from another tribe and came to the Lord. So that's what Piper meant by that. The chief end of man, the purpose of man, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but billions don't, and some have never even had access to the gospel. So the reason God saves us is to become those who glorify God and worship Him, and we're going to do that forever and ever. That's what our purpose is. Now, the secondary purpose is to witness to others so they have the opportunity to be among the worshipers. I just think that's brilliantly stated, and many others loved it too. So don't shrink back, brothers and sisters. They're coming for Christian businessmen, churches, and preachers today, and they may come for us all tomorrow. But repent of your sin, be filled with the Spirit through prayer, so you'll join 2,000 years of faithful Christians who were unable to stop. And that's a good place to stop. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.